This show is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network. Get more at nerdylegion.com. Enjoy the show! What's up, survivors of the apocalypse? How's it going, everybody? Welcome to Nerds from the Underground. This is Poet Air, and joining me today for his first time is a good buddy of mine and the manager of my local comic shop. Let him introduce himself. This is... My name is Chaz Simons, and I'm excited to be here to talk about comics with everybody. Me and Chaz have had a good time talking about comics. I kind of became friends with him by going to the store that he manages, and I just felt he'd be a good fit for jamming with the nerds and talking about the books we love. We have two great books today. One of them is Global Frequency, and the other one is Chaz... The Fade Out. All right. So let's get into these books. First up, we have Global Frequency, which is written by Warren Ellis and drawn by a bunch of different collaborators on this book. And they are Gary Leach, Glenn Fabry, Liam Sharp, Steve Dillon, Roy Allen Martinez, John J. Muth, David Lloyd, Simon Bisley, Chris Sprouse, Carl Story, Lieber Mayo. Tom Coker, Jason Pearson, and Gene Ha. The colorists are David Barron and Art Lyon, and Michelle Heisler was letterer. And Global Frequency is about a worldwide rescue organization created to deal with any crisis too big, too strange, or too dangerous to handle by more conventional means. Founded and funded by the enigmatic Miranda Zero, this mysterious agency is made up of 1,001 agents, all experts in fields as diverse as bioweapons engineering and parkour running. Each member is equipped with a special mobile phone that keeps them in constant communication with Miranda Zero's cunning right-hand woman, Aleph, the nexus of the worldwide operation. From a middle-aged linguist, a 16-year-old computer geek, a retired detective, to an ace pilot, Global Frequency agents are the best at what they do, and they are humanity's last, best chance for survival. So what do you think about Global Frequency, Chess? I love it. It's perpetually on a yearly reread find myself revisiting a lot i love it too and i love because basically the whole setup of why there's so many collaborators you guys heard on the book is that it's 12 different stories and basically alice has employed a different collaborator to help him with each story and it makes it really great for rereads because you could jump in even on one story and just read it or you could read the whole book as a whole each issue each artist really brings something to that story it feels like ellis chose each person very particularly it wasn't just who was who was available he really built it around it yeah it feels like he built each story around each one of the artists i agree with you like each one's kind of genre and the story beats are perfect for the artists in it kind of like the libra mayo story has kind of tinges of horror and it perfectly fits for mayo's art oh big time. And, and yeah and how kind of bomb had the first story in the book really kind of fits gary leach's art and just has like somehow Gary Leach just captures a good story in California, Northern California, and New York. Just the New York scene when she's going to meet the scientist and to the whole car chase with John and the guy with the bomb in his head. It's just perfect with the story. I gotta say I love it too because it fits uh, to me as like a. It goes so well with Planetary too. It's almost if you're a big fan of Planetary, you're gonna love Global Frequency. Oh, 100%. I think especially as far as the standalone genre stories like you're describing. A lot of these ones have that very distinct story structure that fits into the larger narrative. But like 
that Tom Coker issue that's just two people fighting for like 22 pages and it's just brutal as heck. It's Alice at his oh, best with fighting, yeah, where he just can be yeah, like a brutal, brutal fight. Yeah, just characters. With the second issue with the $6 million, well, $6 billion potentially homicidal cyborg. That issue is a great, like, the best thing I like about that issue also with the with just like the second issue, it's not only like a $6 billion man that's a complete monster, but also the whole team set up almost like a dirty dozen team. Yeah. Where they go in and uh, everyone makes it out and each single person of the team serves their purpose so they could get the mission done. Brings that skill to it. And I think two, two really sets, the first issue sets the purpose of their agency, the rescue operations, and how how they need each expert available at a moment's notice. And the second one really shows the danger in them not being there. That these dangerous creatures and these accidents are going to escape into the world without this outside rescue organization exactly like no one else could really handle the job because even when they get to that base there's already been you know hundreds of soldiers slaughtered by the right bio man and the choice at the end to destroy everything and prevent even just another one of those being created at whatever cost is worth it so that really shows the, the sacrifices you know miranda's willing to take with their team and the team also right even though somehow which one thing i will say about that one is a sniper i thought he was gonna die but then he uh, didn't look like he died hey no but i think uh radiation poisoning is probably I not the best way the to radiation go. i think that's the penalty he's gonna pay yeah exactly yeah so what would you say your favorite story of the 12 issues is that's a tough one i if i did write them down actually in a list as i was reading them and i had to reorder it several times but i think the david lloyd parkour issue is probably the one that i always find myself smiling at the end of like i feel things every other issue but i'm i'm left with such a sense of like action and hope it's so complete in giving me a full adventure while still teasing a little more that one i think would be my favorite what about yours my favorite would be big sky the one the one drawn by john j muth oh man yeah that one's a really good one mostly just because it talks about a weird phenomenon i'm obsessed with called infrasound which is like really low sound that can make people hallucinate yeah go crazy low frequency right yeah it's like such a low frequency sound that you don't even know it happens and it happens in real life like it'll happen in caves and stuff like that you know basically can make you hallucinate make you feel like you're dying you don't even realize you're hearing the sound. Holy cow. It's just a frequency that makes your brain freak out. I was saying I love the Alan Crow character. I love his explanation of magician. I love that it's heavily implied that he's Aleister Crowley. Yeah. Uh, the disappearing act. The, that was pretty great. Yeah, when he just straight disappears and just his way he talks about Crowley. And then they, they basically bring up, you know, just hints heavily that he is. And the art by Moose great. I mean, I'm a big Sandman fan. So, I mean, I always love seeing Moose art. Yeah, and it's scratchy and cold and out there, kind of. It very sells the where it's set. Exactly. And your pig's great, too. I feel like the David Lloyd issue is so kinetic with what it does. Like, I feel like it's an action-packed adventure the whole time. And, like, this was writing about parkour before parkour even really became big. Yeah. Because that's our agent, and there's a parkour expert, and she's kind of just racing across the rooftops of London to basically stop a disaster from happening. And it does have such a happy and kinetic cinematic kind of ending to it. There's that moment where she's climbing the eye and there's the family and she's like, whoa, there's Spider-Man. And she looks just like me. 
because it's a lady and she's brown and everybody's yeah like, yeah so even back then it was really cool to see that cool moment of inclusive especially ellis writing about it back then to include that everyone should be right. represented in yeah heroes. that they can be anywhere we can see them in everyone so that was really cool that is also a great choice the i would say my second and third would probably be well maybe i don't know this is tough it has to go down to I, my next would probably be the libra mayo story yeah i was gonna say we got to talk about that one if we we got to circle back because you had mentioned it before and i wanted to get a little Let's deeper into it so the mayo story opens up and it's about a japanese agent who says he's not on the frequency anymore he basically had a his last job with the frequency ended up with a bunch of dead schoolgirls, and he's too dark too, yeah it's too dark and he doesn't want to go anymore yeah. go on any of the missions and he accepts it and he ends up in a lab in japan and what happens when he gets there? Just all kinds of madness. Imagine a aerosol-based LSD that had been released into a doctor's airways, and they decided to just see how all people worked and sew them back together in all sorts of LSD acidy ways. Just the the wildest Japanese body horror that you can imagine americans comprehending there's what he encounters in this hospital yeah and it, it's just all of these bodies just completely strung together and just the art the art depiction in this by Romeo is so perfect and the way he captures just takashi the agent's you know reactions to what he's encountering in this lab it's great it's amazing yeah the way that he floats between styles too because he has that pencil style that's almost the traditional comics but then he has that almost painted kind of digital finish to some things so there are moments where that horror is so startling and painted in this like detail and then you see the expression of a doctor in this traditional style way and he's just totally separated from this reality he's created and it's just it's such a great issue yeah his eyes too i'm looking at the page right now and the deluxe hardcover is so like yeah out of touch with everything just obsessed with looking inside a human body. And I, I'm hit or miss from Bermejo. I like his art. He's a very, obviously, insanely talented artist. But for superheroes, I don't always dig it so much. But for a story like this, it hits, like, the right notes for me. Like, it's grim. It's the closest story yeah. in the book to be a horror story. And the way Bermejo just kind of illustrates everything going on in it, it's like... It hits the shadows and everything. The it's... shadows and negative space that he plays with in this is incredible probably maybe the best part yeah. about it with the, he basically is using greens purples and negative space to just create this gorgeous and terrifying canvas yeah i really also dig all of the shout outs to those things like suicide club and battle royale and he's named takashi yeah so takashi like like takashi miki fellow uh johnny's favorite director takashi miki you know that that's who he's named after oh 100 percent. but yeah i love that that issue definitely is up there but i also love mostly for the art but just because the final story kind of brings together all these characters we've met even though it's displaced in time because you've seen some characters in it that have died but they're all there together so i like also that the book doesn't take place in a continuous timeline yeah and ha's art in it is just great i mean gene ha is just such a great artist when i was young he just he grew up like idolizing his art but before he really colored it himself or had like colorists that could like really do the kind of detail of work he could do it is seeing that story for me is just the art's great i love how it kind of brings everyone together and i love the communication before the basically they have to stop a satellite's going to release these harpoons and the conversation that happens between the scientist 
in the astronaut before the scientist sends the astronaut up is great. It is. It's phenomenal. Yeah, when he serves in the whiskey, and well, this is a great way if you introduce the character and you're only with the character for five pages and it feels like you've known him for a whole series. Yeah, he's phenomenal. He's just like a, a pat on the back. Like, I could I could see that guy at a barbecue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's one thing I always love about Warren Ellis is he can be reason he's my favorite writer is because he's so brief and his character development's so good not just with showing with the words he can do it even you know if he was showing not just telling like with just words but just some sequences he can just build so much and it shows really a master storyteller so on the end note of talking about global frequency i would i would say the weaker stories no story's bad this is a a great book and definitely if you like any of the books that we've recommended before from warren ellis on here i would definitely check it out like I said, if you're a Planetary fan, you got to read this book. It's the best. Yeah. I mean, I read this way after I ever read Planetary. And I actually read this the first time on recommendation from Chaz and also Brian from your store. And I hadn't read it. And they were both like, you got to read this. And the, I didn't buy it the first time. And then when I bought it the second time, I was like, why didn't I read this earlier? I just can't believe I was you know, out of the loop on this book. It's great. And especially being a Planetary fan, it was perfect for me. The only stories that say that weren't yeah, that I just don't think are fantastic. There's no bad story in this. I'd say my least reread stories are the Simon Bisley drawn one, and also the Aleph story. I'm right there with you on the Aleph one. The Aleph one for sure. The Aleph ones is so basic. Yeah, and it doesn't add to the larger narrative. It feels like if there was going to be Global Frequency, a second sort of 12 issue maxi series. And that was going to be a bigger thing that they were going to build on. Cool. But I didn't... She was already badass, kind of. So it didn't really add to it. Yeah, Aleph was badass just from everything we learned about her. And it felt like... Right. We already know she would be badass in the line. Yeah. And it feels just so basic. Like, it just shows that she can stand up on her own. She could. From what we've already learned in the series. Right. When she's talking to the hostage negotiator or dealing with getting everybody on the line, like, she's very competent, so... We didn't really need that. And the Bisley one, I really dig that story because the the yeah. spy versus spy setting everybody up and everybody's already suspicious of each other, so they're playing off. It's such a cool story that the art doesn't serve well enough. Like I'm, I agree. It's it's low. No, I'm there. I'm not a huge fan of his art. Never a big Judge Dredd fan, and I like. The story elements, like especially with the showdown with uh, Ling and the terrorist, and then the way it ends is definitely kind of like heart-wrenching and has you on the edge of your seat. But there's just sometimes where the hands are just right. like not the hands on the characters have to ignore. Not even just the hands, but the faces, yeah, yeah. skinny necks, and the weird like Burton-esque proportions. Yeah, yeah, and it just could like, be not consistent, yeah. but still great. Last shout out for me is. I also love the Roy Allen Martinez drawn issue. The art in that is, I think, great. And I just love the chemistry between Jill and between uh, Danny Gulupil. Just uh, their whole chemistry while they're going there to stop that call is perfect. And then when they finally stop him, I just love that last line, like, let's go get a drink. Yeah. Actually, I think we should just get straight to the shagging. Great way to end a story. Yeah. So that's Global Frequency. My final thoughts are it's great. Every issue... It's a little story. It completes the story and narrative it starts originally. And they're all fun. If you like spy tales, if you like horror tales, if you like weird science, if you like the weird world that we actually exist in and really learning the deep corners of it, I would check it out. Definitely get it. There's a deluxe edition you can get out that I recommend. The pages are huge. It looks gorgeous. 
Yeah. So what are your final thoughts on the book, Chaz? I love it. It's definitely for just about anyone. Like you were saying, each story will scratch any particular itch. If you're looking for something sci-fi, if you're looking for something spy, if you're looking for something action, something a little bit just more thoughtful, like you're describing with the Muth issue, there's a lot in this for everybody. So definitely, if you just need something cool and new to read, you can't go wrong with Global Frequency and with that hardcover that you were describing especially, because that extra little bit of detail really makes it so it does it truly does all right jazz let's get into the next book we're going to go into the fade out by ed brubaker sean phillips and colors by their constant collaborator the amazing elizabeth brightweiser man i love this one so good and perfectly formatted the 12 issues give you that perfect sort of three-act structure to the whole thing. What did you think of this one? I love this book. I go back and forth all the time if, like, just his kind of criminal mass saga or fade-out is my favorite thing he's ever done. I mean, I like a lot of Brubaker's work. It's hard to say anything. I mean, it's even hard to compare them, really. But so this fade-out, which is just this story of old Hollywood during the Red Scare and when the McCarthy era, where they're basically blacklisting people, and it's just this... L.A. confidential-esque story about a struggling screenwriter named Charlie Parrish who can't even really write. He was in the war and it scarred him, so he can't write himself. And he's basically using his blacklisted screenwriter, Gil Mason, which is actually really based on, I believe, Elia Kazan, I think was blacklisted for a time during McCarthy era, and he would write for some of his writer friends. Basically, Charlie goes to a party with his Hollywood elite friends, who basically is a with this party with Earl Rath, who's almost like if we were in a movie version, I'd imagine Chris Hemsworth playing Earl Rath, but he's supposed to be like a yeah, or even he's supposed to be I think like a Lawrence, like a Lawrence Olivier, Olivier, Clark Gable of. type, even though Clark Gable is actually in the story as well. Yeah, which is pretty cool. There's a couple of classic cameos in this. Yeah, thing. there's a bunch of old actors cameoing it, and so Charlie's working on this film, and they're struggling, and he goes to a party with the cast. He's the writer of the movie. And he blacks out, and the lead star of the film ends up dead. And he ends up with his panties in her hands. He doesn't know what happened. Passed out in her bathtub. Passed out in her bathtub, yep. He's right there. And basically, it's Charlie's awkward investigation into Valeria Summer's death. And just kind of into the corruption of Hollywood and the corruption of the era. You know, everyone's dirty and everyone has hands tied somewhere. And Gil, the blacklisted screenwriter, kind of is his cohort in these missions, and he's just a raging alcoholic. And while Charlie is constantly scared, nervous, and trying to do everything careful, Gil is drunk, screaming, and constantly blowing their cover. Throwing himself into the action. He's throwing himself into the action constantly, and he's supposed to be hiding because he's blacklisted. I almost feel like throwing throwing Charlie into the action in front of him sometimes, or her, or pulling yeah, him behind him at pushing least pushing charlie even more into the mystery yeah. more and they're so clueless these are not ace detectives eventually they get closer to the truth but it's almost on dumb luck and it's it's very much a like a lebowski mystery i want to say it it is like a lebowski mystery and it, it reminds me of like lebowski big lebowski crossed with la confidential in chinatown yes the ending Reminds me of Chinatown so much. Big time. Not to give spoilers away for the ending of Fade Out. If you love noir, you love old Hollywood like I do, and you love Ed Brubaker, this is something if you haven't read, it's a must read. Like 
one hundred. Yeah, I'd put it on all reading lists. And I love how each different chapter kind of introduces more about a character. Like, I love where you see the the, the studio executive when he went up and lived with that hippie cult for a while. Yeah. All the little details they have. And almost the MVP of the story for me, even though he's not necessarily a likable character, would be Phil Brodsky. What do you think of really? Phil Brodsky? I, I actually enjoyed his, I want to say, uh, his opposite in a way. I really liked Dottie. Dottie Quinn a bit more than Phil Brodsky. Brodsky is the muscle. I like Dottie as well. She's the heart. Dottie's the heart of this story. But she's it's, she's got the power too. I can see why you liked her. I feel like when we when you start to talk about the fade out, like overall and noir total is, in this story especially, the secrets are such currency, and Dottie is somebody who controls all of that. Like right there from the ground level, she's shaping these people's lives these stars lives and now has this knowledge that she can hold against them. yeah she controls the secrets and she also kind of crafts their lives for them right she's i think she's very aware but also unaware of the amount of power that she has there's a character in this which they also do that is clearly based off james dean named tyler graves yeah but it's clearly what was actually happening with james dean if you, you don't know what actually was going with james dean there's a bunch of stuff written about it. But anyway, the character is definitely based on him. And I love that his secret lover is James Dean. It was a nice little wink to all of that. A, a wink? Yeah. Because yeah, I'm reading, I'm like, this is James Dean. And I'm like, wait, no, that's James Dean. But they have all sorts of hints like that. Like, I feel like even though Earl Rath and Clark Gable are clearly different, I feel like Earl Rath definitely has some Clark Gable or, you know, like you Humphrey said. Humphrey Bogart-esque or Lawrence Olivier kind of yeah, that yeah, swagger definitely. of old hollywood yeah the leading man swagger rock hudson all those yeah. kind of people i think one thing i definitely want to talk about in this is guilt i guess when you read the fade out did you get a pretty strong sense of guilt reading it yeah i feel like there's a lot of guilt especially from charlie especially you know, almost, especially from charlie because I feel like he feels a lot of guilt because of the war. He feels a lot of guilt about his wife and his family before he did that. I feel feel like he feels a lot of guilt on his actions in life because I feel like a lot of times he takes the easier way out and doesn't yeah. do, make the right choice because he's too scared of his own self-preservation. I was getting a very similar sense and then felt like his point in solving this case, why was he driven to solve all of this was to absolve some bit of that guilt when you see the scene with him and valerie together when they reveal the big sort of moment they had that he had forgotten for a long time that moment really solidified that he's solving it for her but for him like he's solving it for her but to make himself feel better right right it's not so much that he's even worried that he committed the crime but on some level he wants to know what had happened just overall to absolve himself of some little bit of guilt because so much is left unresolved by the end exactly and as long as he knew it wasn't directly his hands he could feel a bit better and i feel like he feels like he did something for someone besides himself but he's really doing i think still just to make him feel better it's odd too because like you said doing something for somebody else he's doing that for gil or him and Gil are collaborating in this sense. And during the course of the book, it's definitely made to feel as though that partnership is very strained. But he is still doing things. Like, he's he doesn't have to feel so guilty. But I think that's the noir trope, kind of. that. No, I, I think it's the noir trope, and I think it's about just, I feel like a lot of it's dealing with the character's depression and his, like, maybe his own inadequacies. I think it has to deal with him not being able to write and kind of lean on other people. Yeah. And 
they they never make clear the horror that he sees. It's just implied that it's something so wrong in the war that's taken away his ability. To it, it it makes him obviously like he constantly has a vision of the planes over at Hollywood, right? And he's constantly gripped by that. The reason I like Brodsky is how you were saying with Dottie is he also is just enforces all the secrets. And really at the end, like that's the one person who he Brodsky still really controls Charlie even to the end. Like there's no pushing back to that. Yeah. And I just feel. I feel like I could movie cast all this. If Brodsky, my my version would be a ripped Brad Pitt. Like old Brad Pitt. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I, I think Mark Ruffalo would have to be Gil Mason. That's my number one. I could see that. Big time. I, I Especially drunk, all scruffy. Yeah, drunk, scruffy Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Gil is such a lovable drunk. He makes such a buffoon of himself, but I feel bad for him so much the way the story turns out for him and kind of how everyone the... treats him. The deepening of this mystery, to go from the murder to something even darker than that for Hollywood, like, it really messed with guilt. It did, and it goes much deeper and has ties way deeper than even Hollywood, you'll find out. Right. And I love the little yeah. ranch, uh, the, the, all the stuff you know about old Hollywood, the, the ranch, that's the Manson Ranch, or the ranch, uh, the ranch where Manson lived, the people have seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood recently like that, and this is another great book for you, but... Al Camp, his ranch that they yeah. do all the films on, where he's creepy. That's yeah. the same abandoned ranch that. I mean, it's based. I don't think it's actually called Camp, but that's based on the same ranch where Manson and all of his followers lived. Yeah, I think it was. It's something with an S, I think. But I know, yeah, exactly what you mean. And it's got great noir stuff, like a mystery man you're trying to find. And I not give it away. For a long time, I didn't know if that was real or if Charlie was losing his mind, which is another great part of noir. Really, up until, I want to say even like halfway through that second act, so maybe like issue 7, or right around issue 8, near the end of that second act, it really seemed like Charlie was inserting a whole imaginary party into this whole sequence of events. And an imaginary person he keeps seeing. Right. Like, there's more happening around him that, that really messes with him. But... I did enjoy the sense of confusion that the book was able to sow for so long, but by the end still feel rewarding. Exactly, and it's just the way Brubaker can write mysteries and write characters. He has each character, you know, with so many angles. It's my favorite thing about him. He can make the dirtiest, most rotten characters you still feel for, and he can make people that aren't really that bad, like Charlie, sympathetic. Right. He's just none of his characters are black or white. They're all gray. And they're all, like, real humans, which is another reason I've always loved Brubaker. He writes people like people. And especially in a mystery noir like this, it just flies to new heights. I mean, it's such a perfect book to always reread. It puts me in a mood every time. And it just always makes me feel, like, not just, like, my love of comics, but just my love of fiction. Right. My love of that era of Hollywood. My love of mystery and noir. This is stuff I wish they made more still in films. That's why I keep on talking about a movie version and, or even a TV show version. It'd be phenomenal. I wish Noir had a bigger outlet still, that we got more of it. And hopefully we get more of it, because now everything's streaming, because it's just not something I think that could really put people into movie theaters anymore. Right. And I hope we get more of it in comics. I mean... It deserves... Brubaker, right? More Noir. I mean, he's writing that story I talked to you about Friday. I feel like he has a Noir bit to it, but I mean, now that you're taking a break from... Uh, I mean, we're getting Pulp soon. I'm really excited for Pulp. Yeah, I was going to say, we get Cowboy Pulp yeah, coming up. That, I'm really excited for that. I'm super excited for Pulp as well. Um, Brubaker's fiction really lends itself well. The serialized nature of this noir storytelling. 
Yeah, anything... fits for comics very well and would fit for scripted television, I think, even better in a way. No, I agree. Like, if they straight up adapted this, like, you couldn't say it's about most comics, but if they straight up adapted the fade out line for line, scene for scene for a TV series on HBO, it'd be perfect. Yeah, 100%. There's that glamour I, to Hollywood. There's the glamour. The characters are well put. I mean, there is the narration, which you would love in noir. I don't know. I don't know if we could pull that up, but it would be so missed. But I think they should. I feel like just yeah. get a perfect noir voice and narrate the whole thing, and it'd be great. And I feel like you could make a lot of different actors shine in the roles, and it could be straight adapted. This is like there's not much to change. Maybe you would do a six episode and make each issue two issues for an episode. Yeah, you can cut a little bit here and there. I'm, it does kind of weave a little bit. Like I had described it earlier, Lebowski-esque, there's a few times where it definitely kind of takes a left and cruises for a little bit before it forgets where it was and course corrects again. But it all pays off in the end. So Yeah, it all comes out to a complete great story. And if you're a fan of Criminal and know the back issue stuff they have in the back are there, if you get the deluxe edition here of Fado, you get a bunch of cool stuff too. You get a Jimmy Stewart story about Jimmy Stewart's War in Hollywood which has themes relevant to the story you just read. And that's written by Devin Farasi yeah. from many different websites. And it has a lot of different art from from Sean and, of course, Elizabeth Brightwazer as well. I mean, this, I love Sean Phillips' art in this. I mean, I love his art and everything, but it fits so well in a noir period. Especially this period. The cars, the buildings, like everything. The coastline. He makes California. It looks so beautiful. Even when it's so ugly. Like seeing dead bodies and things, but everything else around it is still so glamorous. It's glamorous, grim, it's exotic, erotic, and it's just perfect. And it really does have that feel yeah. of guilt. And it can be soul crushing, but it's also just so great. And just really reminds you of a time that I wish I could go back and visit because it just has this kind of magic about it. It really I does. I gotta say, read the fade out. If you haven't read it yet and you like Ed Brubaker, it's definitely a pick for you. There's no excuse for not reading it, especially after this. But if you're a fan of Ed Brubaker and you've never read it, there's no reason to not read it. That's true. All right, Chaz, do you have any final things to say for the night? I had a really great time talking to y'all. I know it maybe sounded a little weird, but I'm just so excited. So thanks for having me. No worries. It sounded great. Talking about books is what we love to do. Once again, you can find me as PoetAir33 on Twitter. And you can find Chaz as... At Chaz Simons on Twitter as well. And you can find us. <clears throat> we are the Nerds from the Underground. And you can always find us on the Nerdy Legion. And you can go ahead and check us out on Twitter and upload our podcast there. And also on Apple. Have a great day.